Welcome back, finally, after a little bit of a hiatus for the holiday weekend, we return with the All Bases Covered podcast. I got my brother from another mother, Sam, on the line. We're glad to have him here. We got Josh calling in. We got a pretty big show tonight. We're coming at you a little later. My nephew graduated today. Uh, So uh, glad to have you on, Sam. What's going on, buddy? Oh, man, just living the dream, you know, another day in paradise, uh, oh. as we like to call it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a lot of shit has obviously gone down since the last time we were all on a podcast. Um, yet another uh, tragedy has befallen uh, the United States, and it feels like United, the United States as a whole feels like one of those factories where they put up a sign where it's been X amount of days since our last shitty thing that's happened. And I don't think America can go seven days, hardly, uh, without something happening. The way things are going now, it's tough, man. It is extremely tough. Uh, We had a situation in Uvalde, Texas, where 14 school children uh, were shot and actually I think it's 19 now 19 school children were shot and killed by a crazed 18 year old 10 days before that we had a mass shooting at a Buffalo supermarket and about what a week after Uvalde there was a man that shot up a hospital because he was upset with the doctor uh, it's uh, I, you know it's one of those things, man, where you get angry about it, but it's – I honestly, you know, it's like when are we going to do something about it? This is not a gun – Yeah. This isn't a gun control thing. This isn't me saying let's ban weapons. I'm smart enough to know that in our gun-obsessed country, that's never going to happen. But oh, here we got Josh calling in here, and our guest Carl will be calling in in about six minutes. But I wanted to take this to a group discussion, Sam and Josh, real quick before before Carl calls in from the Navy Sports Network. And I wanted to ask you guys what you think could or should be done to limit the mass shootings, which strictly a United States problem. The school shooting is a uniquely American problem that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. First off, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. All right, sweet. So, I I am one of them redneck, gun-toting people. But I agree there should be changes to the way people can buy guns. They, uh, honestly, I don't think you should be able to go to store, pass the gun credit, and get the gun that, that same day. I think there needs to be hold three to five days a week 
doesn't matter. Um, gun goes up to 21. You can't purchase a gun unless you're 21 years old. I'm okay with that. You're still allowing the Second Amendment right. You're not taking away somebody's God-forsaken rights that they, they say they have, you know. But as far as protecting our kids, I think we need to have police officers. If we can send $40 billion to Ukraine to help them protect themselves against Russia, why can't we invest $40 billion into protecting our schools? Uh, I agree. I'm not so high on arming teachers. Um, and it's not to say I didn't say teachers. I know you didn't. I didn't no, say I'm teachers. I, I know you didn't. And I'm, I know you didn't. I'm just saying in general, I'm not high on the idea of arming teachers. I'm, I'm more comfortable with the idea of having a trained officer or someone there that is. Exactly. Right? Um, I agree. I agree with that. Job. Arming teachers. I think arming teachers. You open up the possibility of somebody wrestling that teacher down to the ground and possibly getting their weapon if they know they have Correct. it. Correct. Correct. So uh, I, 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 one of the teachers that I went to high school with uh, that taught me in high school, I would have had no issues as a seventeen, eighteen year old kid taking out that teacher and taking their gun. I mean, being honest, some of these teachers were small. Sam, I don't know what the teachers were like in Jersey. You're kind of mobbed up over there. So I'm not Yeah, our teachers out there, they they dealt, they gave out the ass whooping. So, um, you know, <laughs> our teachers out, uh, out in Jersey, uh, I would trust them with a the gun. Let's put you that way, you know? <laughs> some of these guys were, were like, uh, you know, uh, I'd say like a lot of them were – in, in New Jersey, you know, the teachers in the era that I grew up, so I graduated in 03. In that era, I'd say a lot of the teachers were ex-military or some sort of military, Navy, Army of some sort, right? Um, yeah. Disciplined people, right? But they loved to teach. So that that helped us, you know. I had great teachers growing up in New Jersey. That's good. Yeah, I don't know. I, it's, I, wanted, to I wanted to make – I wanted to point one thing out since we're talking about it. Like, yeah. Uh, you know, Michigan's a open carry state. You know, um, you can get your CCW and you can get it. You can conceal and carry as well, right? Um, my my thing has always been. Obviously, no one's gonna t- try to. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they may try to take away the right to bear arms, but it's never gonna really happen. Let's be completely honest. You know, I don't think it's gonna happen. Um, but I think that the you know limiting automatic, semi-automatic, doing more extensive background searches before you know, letting people purchase them, um, including, like, some sort of mental check, you know, because, you know, you can have no record, not be a felon, but just be mentally unstable and be on Adderall or something, and you can go get a gun. But, you know, automatic, semi-automatic, it's really not necessary. You know, even the caliber of ammo, there's no reason why you need a three fifty seven. You can, you can incapacitate, you, you could take some, not take somebody, yeah, you can stop someone from doing something to you with a twenty two. So you probably might not take a life with that 22, right? Um, so I don't know. I, I have different thoughts on it. Being here, being in the state of Michigan where everyone's very gung-ho about open carry, um, you know, it, it's it's hard because, uh, you know, you you don't know who has what, where. It's true. I, here's my yeah, thing. well, I, Ohio, Ohio is changing that to where you can actually open carry. 
uh, starting sometime in mid-June. So you don't have to have your, your license anymore to carry in Ohio. Yeah, that's how it is here in Michigan. So it's open carry. Oh. And if you want to conceal and carry, you have to get a CCW. In the uh, past, no, you have to get a CPL, and that's not, that's not mandatory anymore. That, they got rid of that a couple of years ago. Yeah, they don't. So, they're uh, you don't have to. We got uh, we got Carl uh, joining us here. Sorry, calling in. I don't want to keep him on hold very long, but I just wanted to set point this out, and we can circle back to this after our interview with Carl. But I did want to say, I agree, I agree, with Josh. At twenty-one, raising the limit, purchasing gun. I also think you should have to pass a license, much like you get a driver's license. You have to have a license to own a gun. That's also not infringing on people's Second Amendment rights. That's making you do see how mentally fit you are, uh, and other things. But uh, we can circle back to this as I don't want to keep Carl waiting. Uh, so it was great pleasure. Uh, I want to welcome uh, Carl Darden onto the show. Hey, Carl. How are you doing this evening? Hey, how's it going? Good, good, good. It's a pleasure having you on. Uh, Carl is the host of Navy Sports Central. Uh, so we're going to talk to him uh, about uh, a couple different things in, uh, involving uh, the Naval Academy and, and sports and, and uh, kind of some of the things that they're up against uh, when it comes to competing uh, with some of these other programs. So uh, pleasure having you on. Uh, thanks, Carl, for taking the time and joining us this evening. Well, thank you as well, and I appreciate the interest in Navy athletics. It's always fun to kind of talk sports in general, but especially when it comes to the Naval Academy, it's kind of tough to shut me up. So <laughs> be careful what you wish for. Oh, well, no, we're, we love it. We love it. Uh, I, you know, I'm going to um, uh, kind of uh, ask you a two-part question here, and that's um, um, what are some of the recruiting disadvantages that Navy faces compared to, like, you know, obviously like a, a like a Texas or an Alabama, and do you think that Navy could find another athlete that would be willing to come in, do their service time, and, and then go on to a professional career like David Robinson did? Yeah, those are both very good questions, and, and I'll take the first part first. Uh, certainly when it comes to recruiting and you look at the type of um, – individual that the Naval Academy is looking to bring in. Clearly, it's not for the purposes of moving on to a professional sports career, although that has been known to happen. Uh, but basically, they're looking for somebody who is going to be, a, you know, a future leader in the country, whether it's in the military or after they do their military service, you know, after that. But uh, there have been, you know, when it comes to that, it, you really do kind of narrow your scope in terms of the type of athlete you're looking for. I think your typical blue chip five-star athletes are really not on the table. Um, it's been known that athletes who show up at Navy eventually develop into those athletes later on. And David Robinson is a prime example. In fact, he was a freshman at the academy when I was a senior. So uh, I remember oh, okay. when he came in, he, he, he was six foot six. So that was right at the upper limit of what the Naval Academy would accept in terms of height. And then, of course, he grew another six inches, seven inches after that. So that was kind of unusual. Wow. But he was somebody who was – he didn't even start playing basketball until he was about a sophomore or junior in high school, and he just picked it up quickly. That's why he was off of everybody's radar early on. And when he got the Navy, he just got into the right system and developed really well. And next thing you know, 
he's college player of the year as a senior and, and of course went on to uh, serve uh, a few years as a civil engineer and then went on to that great career with the San Antonio Spurs and, and whatnot. But uh, those are the kinds of athletes that if it does happen again, it's going to be that case. Okay. Not somebody who's a four or five-star athlete coming in, but maybe somebody who's okay. a high three-star that has other goals and then eventually develops into that athlete later on. Okay. Now, do you guys, I, you know, that, do you guys have any uh, uh, issues with the NIL now, now that that's in college sports? Well, to tell you the truth, that, that is basically a non-starter. It, it, it's off the table. And I'll tell you why all Naval Academy, students forget just athletes but all naval academy students are in fact government employees and you know they all get while they're there i mean um i think that i don't know what it is now but i remember when i was there i got uh, you know we got a stipend that usually they, they, they basically paid us what was the half it was half the salary of an ensign's pay at the time a navy ensign okay and then that would be used to cover most of our expenses and then we would get you know i don't know 100 bucks, 200 bucks, 300 bucks a month to spend, depending on what your seniority was, you know, whether you're a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. So they all get paid. And because they're government employees, they cannot use um, something like name, image, and, and likeness to profit off of that while they work for the government. So NIL is off the table, okay? Now, if we're focusing specifically on the transfer portal, certainly because of the situation that Navy athletes are in, you're not going to see athletes running, you know, beating down the door to, to transfer from whatever school they're in to Annapolis to get more exposure in their sport of choice. Okay. I mean, clearly it, it typically works the other way around. You have a lot of, well, I don't want to say a lot, but a handful of athletes in football specifically that have left the Academy and gone through the transfer portal with varying degrees of success to tell you the truth. I mean, it basically got started back in 2018. And I think the first significant uh, loss that we had was a guy named Jacob Springer, who was one of our linebackers. He played, uh, I believe one of the hybrid positions, I think he's a striker. And uh, he was, he led the he led the team in tackles for a loss that year, uh, had a great game against army. The team went 11 and two. And the very next year uh, he, well, he entered the transfer portal after the season, ended up transferring to Mississippi state. Now he did really well there. Uh, he, in fact, he just finished up, and I don't know that he got drafted or anything, but he had a really good senior season for them. But besides that, the other Navy athletes hasn't, haven't really done anything, and that's why I always kind of focus on the fact that they need to really take stock of what their situation is and whether or not they can really benefit from the transfer portal if they enter it because it, it's, not, it's no guarantee that they'll get a chance to land on their feet someplace and really excel. And the other example I can give you is a guy named Jamel Carruthers, Again, he had a blockbuster year as a fullback for Navy, um, led the team in rushing and everything, entered the transfer portal, ended up landing at Western Kentucky, and last year he got like three carries for nine yards. So, you know, it's it's really kind of hit or miss. And I'd always caution these athletes to really kind of take stock of their situation before they look to, to enter the transfer portal. So that's yeah, that's that's extremely interesting. Um, yeah, and I I, I kind of figured that that Navy wouldn't really probably benefit from NIL as well as the transfer portal. Like I don't envision envision a lot of guys leaving, you know, their schools to come to Navy. I I, I always kind of wondered though is is it how 
is it an easy thing to leave Navy in the transfer portal or are there requirements that the athletes have that they have to fulfill before they can leave the school? Or is there any kind of penalty for transferring from Navy since they're, since they're at a service academy? Question. Um, if, they, if they happen to leave before they start their junior year, okay, uh, there's a there's a contract they got to sign. It's called basically we we call it two for seven night, which basically means if you sign that paper, you're doing another two years at the academy, and then additionally another five for a total of seven, and that constitutes your commitment. But if you do not start your junior year at the academy, you could walk away, no questions asked. So anybody who does decide to enter the transfer portal before they start their junior year is gone free and clear. I mean they don't they don't owe the they don't owe the academy anything. Um, if it's, okay. if it happens after that, then it's just kind of a case by case basis. Like I have no idea what Jacob Springer's arrangement was because he left after his junior season. So he was actually entering his senior year when he left. So my guess is there was probably some sort of agreement that they came to in terms of reimbursing the Academy. And maybe some of that came from Mississippi state in terms of, you know, refunding part of the scholarship. I don't know. Um, it's, it's, it's a mystery to me and I'd love to find out how that worked, but, uh, um, there, at the very minimum, there is some sort of agreement that they typically would come to to make sure that, you know, all parties walk away satisfied. And, again, my, my main thing is it's the, the type of athlete that Navy typically goes after, uh, if they do wind up going to the transfer portal, it's typically because they've developed way beyond what the coaching staff probably figured they would. To, to kind of make them go that route, or they just might have some preconceived notions of how good they really are. But, but my main thing is yeah. I don't want that to interfere with the coaching staff's uh, focus on who they should go to recruit. I don't think they should let the transfer – the possibility of losing an athlete to a transfer portal, I don't think that should let them get – I don't think that should get in the way of them recruiting the athlete that they need as long as that person, whether it's a male or female, meets all their other criteria for, for being successful at the Naval Academy. So actually, actually getting into like the football games, why why do they always seem like they're they only rush and they're not like a big <laughs> passing team or anything like that? <laughs> that's, a good, <laughs> that's a good question. I've always that's that's the one thing I've always wondered. Like the Naval Academy, Army, it's it's more rushing up front, and well, then there's like really no passing game. It, it really it really boils down to the type of athlete that they can actively recruit, okay? Um, and if you look at the average size of a Navy offensive line compared to, um, you know, another you know, another team's defensive line, and it, this goes for Army and Air Force too, you will notice a huge disparity in weight on average. It's probably 50 to 70 pounds, um, you know, per person on average. Now, the Naval Academy – is recruiting bigger athletes. I mean, we've had nose guards that are around 300 pounds. You've got centers that are up around that number, but on average, they can't pull in those big, you know, those big guys that play at the other schools. The other thing is uh, when you look at where the offenses are these days with the, with the spread and everything, I mean, the triple option is a version of a spread, I guess, but the bottom line is that is the only system that service academies historically have been able to play and still be competitive with Division One football, no matter how much Division One football evolves. Okay, and the best example I can give you is that, uh, in when was it, 2016? 
Uh, Navy had a pretty decent team. Uh, they didn't start off the year all that great. They lost their starting quarterback in the very first game of the season. And they, the guy that came in, had only he'd never played in a game except for just basically uh, holding for the, the field goal kicker and uh, extra points. So he was a senior, so he knew the system, came in, and they, they had a great year. I mean, they, they ended up playing in the uh, American Conference Championship game and the highlight of the season was number six, Houston, came to town. And, and Houston had just basically run, I think, they played, I don't know if it was Oklahoma or somebody, but they basically just beat down Oklahoma a couple of games earlier. And they were undefeated, and they looked like they were going to be a, a lead pipe cinch to, to get the first non-Power 5, you know, um, college football playoff bid, you know, if they, if they ran the table and went undefeated. But they came in into Annapolis, and – and ran into a team that played the triple option flawlessly. I mean, they were they didn't get a single penalty. They ran for, God, I don't know, 350-plus yards, and they did pass, too, just enough to keep them honest. But to answer your question, it is the only system that allows service academies, which are somewhat limited in their recruiting pool anyway, to be able to compete at the Division One level because they are in a system that other teams do not see that often. And to play against it just once a year and have to try and prepare for it is a pain in the neck for them. And that's why yeah. the mids have been so successful. Long story short, they knocked off number six, Houston. That ruined any chance of them making it to the college football playoff. And it, at least to, the, to date, it's the highest ranked team that Navy's beaten. Well, actually, they, they beat a number two ranked team back in you know the mid-80s when I was there. But, uh, but that, that Houston team was, was something special, and, and Navy was able to take them down. I remember watching that and being shocked that that Houston, after after beating who they beaten to that point in the season, ended up losing. And I was like, man, that's 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 got to leave a little bitter taste in the mouth. But uh, yeah, to your point, Carl, I think that you don't need great. I don't want to say. I guess I'm trying. You don't need great speed to run the triple option, right? If you run the spread offense, you got to get fast, big wide receivers. You got to be able to pass pro. You got to have a quarterback that can throw the ball all around the field. And a lot of those guys are not, they're not coming to Air Force, Army, or Navy, but to have to have a week of preparation time to prepare for the triple option offense or the, or the flex bone or, or your whatever variation they're running, is very difficult to do. And, and, I think our, who was it a couple of years ago? Army lost by like was it Oklahoma that they gave Oklahoma everything they wanted uh, for uh, yeah. the entire game three years ago or so? Uh, they played Oklahoma exactly very right. tough. Um, well, so it I, went I, in the overtime, didn't it? Yeah, I think um, so. I one believe. game, uh, yeah, one game. Uh, Oklahoma, I think, was able to take them down in regulation, but then they, I think the Michigan game might have gone to overtime because they they fought Michigan right down to the wire as well. I think it was the very next year. So, um, okay. yeah, they've had a couple of close ones too, but they've they've never quite managed to beat a top ten team that I can remember in recent memory. Whereas Navy's done it a couple of times. Uh, they did it against right. Houston, and then a few years before, a year or two before, they beat Memphis, and Memphis at the time was ranked thirteenth. Uh, and they beat Memphis in, in, in Memphis, too, which was something. So um, so now uh, sticking here before I ask you a total homer question, but uh, who do you think was the better quarterback, Ricky Dobbs or Keenan Reynolds? Okay. Uh, 
if you're asking me who was a better triple option quarterback, I got to go with Keenan Reynolds. I mean, that guy was a, was a he was a record setter. I will tell okay. you that that record that he set for most rushing touchdowns by a quarterback, because of the way college football has evolved these days, I if that record gets broken, it's not going to be anytime soon. I don't want to say never, but it's about as close yeah. to never as you can get. I actually did a feature on my my uh, blog because I, I actually write a blog as well about records that are possibly unbreakable. And that could be one of them just because of the way college football is played these days. So Keenan Reynolds was a triple option savant. I mean, from the time he was a freshman, he had that system down. By the time that he was a a junior and a senior, he was practically like having a coach on the field. Um, He would always get the team in the right play. He always made the right decisions. But the one thing that I will give Dobbs the edge on is his arm. Uh, Ricky Dobbs was a much better passer. He was more accurate. He was stronger. He had a stronger arm. And the other thing he did that uh, that Keenan Reynolds didn't do, and I think it was largely because of his ability to throw the ball, was he beat Notre Dame twice. And there's no, <laughs> no other Navy quarterback yeah. can say that, I don't believe, not even Roger Staubach. So um, that that is uh, a real feather in his cap. But Dobbs, yeah, he he was a really he had a really good arm. He ran the option well. He was a strong, powerful runner. wasn't exceptionally fast. I mean, Reynolds had better speed, but he was quick. And sometimes he used to just drive the coaches crazy because, some, you know, his ball security wasn't the best all the time. But he would always bail out the team with his arm. I mean, somehow somehow he'd always made, managed to do it. And uh, that team that he led in 2010 was, was one of Navy's better teams. But Reynolds by far was – he. if you're talking triple option quarterback, yeah, he, he was the guy. Okay, okay. So who would you say – what is the best Navy football team that that you've watched? Um, you'd have to go, if you look at 2015 and 2019, both of those teams went 11 and two, uh, Reynolds was leading the, uh, 2015 team. That was his senior year. And I think, by the way, I think he ended up finishing fifth in the Heisman balloting that year. Um, and then the 2019 team was led by a kid named Malcolm Perry, who, uh, was somebody who kind of grew into the quarterback position. I mean, they tried to play him there as a, as a sophomore, I don't think that he was mentally committed to it until after the junior year when he just basically said, all right, I'm all in. And then he went on to have statistically probably a better year than Reynolds had his senior year. Um, I think that because Reynolds was able to do it all four years, I would still give him the nod over, over Perry, but Perry was way, way more explosive. I mean, that guy was a threat to go to the house every time he put his hands on the ball and he developed into an efficient enough passer where the defense were kept honest and, and then the other thing you want to look at for that year in 2019 is the Navy defense. It was much more aggressive, much better than the 2015 team, although that one wasn't bad. But if you look at, you know, the points allowed per game and the ability to just influence the outcome, the 2015 team was really good at just keeping, you know, other offenses in check and just letting Navy get that, you know, one or two possession point differential and, and hang on from there. Whereas the 2019 events, they, they basically had the power to take over a game and, and just really shut teams down. And you saw it against um, Army in that game. You saw it against uh, Kansas State when they played them in the Liberty Bowl, and they ended up, they ended up winning that game 20-17. So I would say that the 2019 team was just a little bit better than the 2015 team because of their record-setting offense in terms of how many yards they gained on the ground and also their defense. Okay. Yeah, I um... – 
Uh, the, the, one of the questions I want to ask you now, and this is a, a tor- total homer question. I have a feeling I know how you're going to rank these guys. But ranking the Service Academy head coaches from best to worst, you guys, uh, and I'm sorry, I always butcher his name. Uh, this is pronounced Ken Nuomatalo. It's uh, Neil Matalolo is the pronunciation okay. there. So if you look at it long okay. enough, it actually sounds – it actually – you pronounce it exactly how it looks. <laughs> but it takes – sometimes <laughs> when I'm, like, looking at it, I said, okay, do I got enough L's and O's in there or what, you know? But, yeah, Neil Matalolo is, is the pronunciation, yeah. Okay. Uh, then we got uh, Jeff Monken at Army and Troy Calhoun at Air Force. So how would you rank those guys from one to three? Well, you know, if you're going off of record, I, I think Neil Matalolo does have the edge. You know, Calhoun and, and, and Coach Neil Matalolo have been at, at uh, you know, at their positions about the same amount of time. I think that Troy Calhoun got the Air Force a year later. And their record head-to-head is pretty even, too. It might be one game in favor of Calhoun at this time, or it might be even. I can't remember. Um, and then Jeff Monken was actually a coach at the academy with Coach Ken when they were both assistants under Paul Johnson. And then when Johnson went to Georgia Tech, Monken went with him. And then eventually Monken okay. went on to coach Georgia Southern and then before he got up to Army. And, again, record-wise, I would, you'd have to give the edge to Niamatololo. But I think that uh, when you consider uh, the ability to sustain this program under the constant changing conditions of college football, there's, there's no doubt that Niamatololo is – is the guy when it comes to different service academies. I think that uh, the other reason he's so highly regarded is because he generally, I mean, he loves his players and he, he puts them first beyond anything else, sometimes to a fault. Um, one of the reasons that they didn't play that well at all in 2020 is because during COVID, you know, he, he went to the, you know, aired on the side of caution and just really limited the practices in terms of, you know, physical contact and that sort of thing. And then they just got completely blitzed by Brigham Young in the first game of the year. And they never really could yeah. settle on it. They, they didn't have – there was a huge quarterback gap. Um, they'd had several good quarterbacks come in. And then after Malcolm Perry graduated, they had a couple of guys that were decent, but they just didn't quite have the knack for running that option uh, that Perry and the others did. Now they're, they're back to the point where they have a, a solid quarterback in Ty Levitai and, you know, I'm looking for them to probably – I think they may be – if they play up to their potential, they should be able to get back to a bowl game this year uh, and then go on from there because they have a young team too, especially on defense. they got some really serious talent on defense. Yeah. It, it looks like Navy had about four games last year that were one-possession games that could have gone either way. Their loss to Houston, their loss to SMU, the loss to Cincinnati, and then the loss to East Carolina – they were only really blown yeah. out by Marshall and Notre Dame and, uh, you know, uh, Air Force and Memphis. But, yeah, you know, you, you look at Houston and SMU, Cincinnati, East Carolina, uh, some of these other games, the ball bounces a different way. Maybe, you know, maybe Navy gets to six wins last year and goes six and six, makes the bowl game, gets those extra practices. Uh, but if they're a young team, then I, I – you feel like in 2022 here, this upcoming season, that Navy can at least get to six or seven wins this year? Yeah, I was looking at this. And, by the way, that's a great point that you make. I was actually at the SMU game, and they were up 21-7, to but the only problem was it was just too early in the game, and it gave SMU some time to come back. 
Uh, and then the East yeah. Carolina game really hurt because they they were totally in control of that one, and then they just had like one or two bad plays that you know kind of cost them. So yeah, six and six was definitely within reach. And I think when it, when I look at their schedule this year, um, last year they probably had the third toughest in the end, in all of Division One football, just based on how ESPN ranks the the, the difficulty of of uh, yeah. college schedules. But um, uh, this year it's it's still tough, but it's not quite as tough. And I think when I was looking at it, I said, you know, if they play really well, there might be six wins in there. And they just, they just, they got to play perfect football, though. They can't afford to just, you know, goof something up or even take it down off because uh, that's all it takes sometimes. And they're capable of doing it, uh, but it's just going to require a lot of focus. But yeah, six and six is there someplace. It's just a matter of whether or not they execute well enough to do it. Yeah. Agreed. Okay, uh, last question I have for you, Carl, is, uh, and, and I don't know if uh, Josh or Sam have anything uh, to ask you, but the last question I, that I have is, is what sport do you see Navy competing for a national championship in first place? I know basketball could be a popular answer because you only really need one great player and a lot of good players around them. Football, obviously, is going to be very difficult uh, but I don't know if there's some other sports like men's soccer or baseball or, or some other sport that might surprise. Like, so where, where do you think maybe possibly wins the national championship first? Yeah, I, I, I like that one. In fact, that's uh, that's something that I've talked with my my uh, my classmates about, and just used on the group Facebook page that I have for this uh, podcast and blog. But uh, if you have to look at it, and and the one thing I will say is there's been several sports that are kind of they fly way below the radar that the mids have won national championships in fairly recently. One of them, believe it or not, was actually women's rugby of all things. (laughs) Okay. They won this past, yeah, they won this past year. And then last year in rowing, which I don't know, by the way, where are you guys located? Where where do you guys do that show out of? So uh, me, uh, so myself and Josh are here in Ohio and Sam is up in Michigan. Okay. All right. So, um, Rowing. I don't know. I know that, you know, Syracuse has got a big rowing program. I know that occasionally they've done, like, national championships in rowing on the Ohio River. And out west, Washington's University of Washington has got a really good rowing program. Navy's program is as good, okay? I mean, especially on their what they call the lightweight rowing team, which is 178 pounds and below. They did win the national championship last year, and they're ranked number two this year. And, in fact, those championships are taking place this weekend as we speak. Wow. So there's okay. a possibility there. Um, you know, in lightweight rowing or maybe even heavyweight rowing if some things kind of fall in the right direction. But uh, I would say that if you're talking about a sport that's a little bit more high-vis, I'm going to go with men's and women's lacrosse. And I'm going to say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, you've got to go back a little ways, but maybe you made it to the national championship game in men's lacrosse in 2004, and they lost a tight game against Syracuse that could have gone either way. I mean, it went right down to the wire. And um, – and on the women's side, they're coached by Cindy Timshaw, who led Maryland to multiple national championships when she was there. And she's been the only coach that Navy's ever known, and she got them to the Final Four just like five years ago. So the, the thing that okay. kind of plays in their favor in this case is that in both tournaments, it's only 16 teams, right? So all you got to do is win four games. Um, and if you happen to you know, ride a hot goalie and you get a good draw, there's no telling what will happen. And, and that's, that's what happened in the mid in 2004. That's what happened to the women's team in, two, in 2017. And the other thing that's 
that I will say about the men's team is that two years ago, Inside Lacrosse Magazine ranked their recruiting class as number one in the country. And that team right now, they're all juniors. And they're, wow. they're when I say juniors, I'm rising juniors. So they've got two years more to yeah. gel. And, and like I said, all it takes is just for, you know, uh, getting hot at the right time, you know, your goalie just being able to see everything coming at them and then just catching a break on, on the other side of the draw where maybe a, a top-seeded team gets knocked off, and then, you know, anything can happen. So if, if, if you're asking me, I would say that that would be the sport. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but that's their best shot. Sure. Okay. Now, you, uh, real quick, you mentioned something about health. Now, I've always understood that the Ivy League schools are usually – top of the line in Division One rowing. Is that still the case? Like the crew teams at the Ivy League schools like Harvard and Yale, or have they kind of fallen back from some of these other schools? No, you're, you're right. They're, they're still top. Um, maybe took on Yale. They, actually, I think they just their heavyweight team just got edged out by Yale in a dual meet earlier this year. Okay. But they but maybe did knock off. But maybe did knock off Princeton. So yeah, those Ivy League teams are still pretty strong, and Navy is right neck and neck with them all the time. Okay. All right, uh, Sam. Before we let Carl go or Josh, do you guys have anything that you want to uh, ask him, or uh, have any other questions that you guys uh, came up with? You actually covered um, a lot. Oh, um, a lot of the stuff I kind of just let you uh, run with the flow because you asked all the perfect questions, man. I don't know what to say. Okay. <laughs> right. um, well, Carl, it's, it's been a pleasure. I, I hope uh, maybe, you know, when the season starts, you maybe can jump on the show again. And, you know, maybe after uh, looking at, at the looking at Navy's schedule, uh, you know, maybe the week, um, that they play Air Force or something. Uh, maybe we can have you on, or maybe the Notre Dame week, uh, we can have you on on the show and kind of discuss how the season's going. But it's been a pleasure having you, Carl. And I, I, I just I, have one more comment for Carl, though. Um, Carl, make sure you ask a lot of questions about Nebraska when you're on next time. Because Mike <laughs> loves Nebraska and how terrible they are. Uh, yeah. that, that was the one question I was going to ask was uh, – the atmosphere at the Army-Navy game, I know that's like the last football game before all the bowl games and everything. Just the atmosphere there, how, how was that? Uh, I, I mean, oh. I was at the Ohio State-Nebraska game when they were both ranked in the top ten, and that's when Ohio State just absolutely demolished them. But right. just the atmosphere was just unreal. So how was that Navy-Army atmosphere there? Yeah, I mean, if I got to tell you that it, it is it is just plain different. If there's if you ever have an opportunity to to get to the venue where they play the Army Navy game, which is typically Philadelphia, but it's also the Meadowlands, or they also play in Baltimore from time to time. Um, if if you have a chance to go, if you can, try to make it because it is a spectacle that you will never. I mean, it, the, the other the other atmospheres they're they're special in their own way, whether it's Michigan, Ohio State, or you're talking about, you know, Ohio State, Nebraska, or whatever. They're, they're special in their own way, but this, this just has a different feel to it, okay, because it's very reverent. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, obviously, heavy military influence. You'll see a lot of, you know, if you look around, you'll see a lot of, you know, influential people there. But uh, the, you got two teams out there that are just playing because they just freaking love college football, you know. I mean, like I said, the odds of any of them going on to play professionally are very, very slim, so they're just out there just 
you know, just knocking heads because they just love to play the game. And that to me is what makes it so special and, and what makes it such a cool rivalry because, you know, they're just out there competing for the sake of competing. And uh, you, you just see some really special things. I mean, this year, there's a lot of people, you know, I wasn't one of them, but there's a lot of people who didn't give Navy a chance. And I said, look, you know, Army is a good, talented team, but they had a very, very soft schedule. And I just think that they're not as good as people think. And, and once, uh, you know, Navy spotted them that touchdown early on, they basically shut their defense, they basically shut that offense down for the rest of the game. And they didn't even sniff the end zone. So, um, you know, it, the atmosphere itself is just, it's unbelievable. It's just, it'll give you chills just from the opening ceremonies, you know, all the way through to the final uh, gun. And when they sing their, their, their school alma maters, it's, it's, it's terrific. That's awesome. Yeah, I definitely would like, that's on my bucket list of college events to go to is an army Navy game. I think that would be a lot of fun. Uh, to see. Mm-hmm. But uh, Carl, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here. I hope that we can have you back on the All Bases Covered podcast uh, again down the line. And we appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh, to, to talk with us today. Oh, thanks a lot, guys. I really had a lot of fun. And again, thank you so much for your interest in, in Navy sports. That's uh, it's great for me to get out there and and uh, show the flag a little bit. So I appreciate it. Of course. Uh, thank you. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you. Enjoy. Thanks a lot, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. So that was awesome. Uh, Carl Darden from the uh, Navy sports uh, podcast there. So uh, I got to learn a little bit of insight on, uh, on all things Navy sports there. I, uh, so I want to get to this because we got about 18 and a half minutes to go or so left. Um, you know, we still got NBA finals, which, Hey, how about them Celtics boys? That's all I got to say is you guys wrote them off, what, two rounds ago? And and now they're in the finals and going on a 40-16 to four-quarter run. Big game one from the Warriors. Yeah, they're going to win it, man. Uh, they, they said they're going to win it. Uh, I see it actually happening now. Um, they got, they got you know what, they got a, a couple of lucky breaks, man, you know, to be frank. You know, they did, but I'm not knocking them. Okay. But not having Jimmy Butler – for the games that they needed him for, not having Tyler Hero, the games the Heat they needed him for, they were beat up. The Heat were beat up. They were broken down. Um, and Bam is not a number one by any means. You know, it, you can see it clearly from my way. But now the Celtics hold such a, uh, a big advantage on the big side uh, that it's crazy. Like Draymond Green, yes, defensive player of the year, good at, at guarding one through five. But you got, you know, Robert Williams, you have Al Horford, you have Grant Williams that's coming in. Um, you have a bunch of role players that excel at what they do, absolutely yeah. excel at what they do. And um, I'm only saying this because I've been playing 2K a little bit lately, and, dude, those Celtic squads, like, they're, they're pulling everybody on, on the board. And, and, like, you know, fast break, fast break points and, you know, uh, points off a turnover, they're destroying. They have two possible defensive player of the years. One of them actually won. The yeah, other one was in the running too, right? So good yeah. team, good team, very good team, very deep. Um, I I don't know though. I'm still picking the Warriors. I I said before the final started, I thought the Warriors would win in six. I'm still sticking with that. The Celtics shot. Al Horford made six threes. Is that repeatable? No, not at all. But you know what? Derek White can hit six threes. 
the next game. Maybe he could. But I, I feel like the Warriors are so good at adjusting. They've been here before. Now, here's where I think it could get interesting. Is Celtics are a young team. This is their first finals appearances. Finals appearance. I could see them getting like a two-one or even a three-two series lead, but then struggling to close out Golden State as the pressure ramps up. Golden State's been here before. Steph Curry, Draymond, Clay—they've all been here multiple times before. I think that Steve Kerr's going to make some adjustments. I think the Warriors take game two and see what happens. But I still like the Warriors. So you mentioned you mentioned Horford knocking down six threes and, and the the possibility of that happening again. Jason Tatum also shot three for seventeen. That's not going to happen again either, right? So, you you know, that Celtic squad, they're resilient. They have, like I said, they have a ton of great role players. Even Tice off the bench, you know, can spell, uh, you know, on the second unit can spell, you know, Williams or Horford. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with Sam on, on I think the Celtics did get lucky a little bit this playoff run, what? They played Milwaukee and Chris Middleton was out, hurt. Yeah. Do they do they go past Milwaukee with uh, without Middleton being in there? Then the Heat with their injuries for games four through seven. I don't know if they make yeah. it out. I, I mean, all the games were pretty damn close, and Jimmy Butler almost tied it up at the very end, game seven. Um, yeah. I was I was kind of shocked that they did upset uh, uh, the Warriors this past week or yesterday. That was uh, a shock. They were down by 12 to start the fourth. Made that incredible yeah. run. So, all hats off to the Celtics. I still don't think you can beat that Warriors team. I think the Warriors team with Seth Curry, they'll make it happen. I think that dude is just that damn good. So I mean I, I'm with you, Louis. I, I think I think Warriors and seven. I don't see it six. I see it seven. Okay, you see it going seven. Well, I think you know if, if last night's any indication, this could be a great series back and forth. So I'm curious to see what happens on Sunday. Uh, I'm excited for it though. So someone, someone posted a, a, a thing on Twitter. It was like uh, Kyrie Irving left the Celtics and Kevin Durant left the the Warriors. Yeah. Only to like continuously lose, and then guess what? Their teams are now playing in the finals. Yep. And now there's talk about Durant and Kyrie being traded from Brooklyn. They're talking about Durant going to the Suns for a package of DeAndre Ayton and a few others in return, and Kyrie Irving being sent to the Lakers in uh, in return for Russell Westbrook and some draft picks. So well, Lakers don't have draft picks to give though. They're out. They're out I think they're out to 2026 now. 2025, they get five, okay. And so then, but they could give. They they are saying that they wouldn't want to package those. It'd be like a 2027 or 2028 first round pick. That's heavily protected. That's absolutely ridiculous. But does Kyrie want to go play with LeBron and and play second fiddle again? No, no, he apologized for that. If you if you uh, there was a report uh, someone had come out with, and Kyrie actually said, when I was younger. Excuse me. When I was younger and I was playing with LeBron, I didn't understand 
how to act, you know. Um, as he's growing older, I guess he's learning these things, you know, a little too late if you ask me, you know. Yeah, a little bit too late. I still think the world uh, is flat. Yeah. So. All you got to do is ask Stephen A. Smith how he feels about Kyrie, and he'll tell you everything. Oh, yeah. Uh, don't you know Stephen A. Smith <laughs> knows everything? He that, dude. He knows everything. On it. <laughs> yeah, speaking of Stephen A., him this and Molly Berman. We just live in it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, and according to Stephen A. Smith, everybody's his brother. So, um, God, I wish I had audio of this, and I wanted to get into some fantasy football, but I want to talk about this first because it was really quite incredible. Um, MJF, um, as you guys know from AEW, he, he's one of the best talkers, not just in AEW, but in professional wrestling today. He finished his angle with Wardlow. Wardlow uh, had a squash match with him at Double or Nothing uh, this past weekend. Uh, took uh, Beat him with seven power bombs. MJF didn't show up to a media session before Double or Nothing, and there was some concern that he wouldn't show up to the pay-per-view event at all, but he did show. Wednesday, he cut a scathing promo in the middle of the ring, calling out Tony Khan, and complaining that ex-WWE guys who can't hold his jock are coming over to AEW and making three, four times more than he is making. And he cut a pipe bomb for the ages, reminiscent of CM Punk's pipe bomb back in 2011. I don't know if you guys saw it. We don't have clearance for the audio. I wish we did. I, I, wish I, I saw it, man. And, like, I, I, I thought it was really cool. But there's certain things that I, of the certain aspects of the business, I don't think he understands. Like buying the wash, the WWE washouts that are getting paid more, they actually pave the road for the new breed of wrestlers to actually come through. They have a brand that that still holds true across, you know, multiple organizations. So I mean, I agree with him, you know, on certain things. But I think the the whole display. Uh, I don't know. As an older person, in in you know, I guess I'm not really old in that sense. But like we've been watching wrestling for a while, and you know, it it hit, but it didn't really hit the right way. Yeah, I'll I'll have to disagree. I think it was perfect. I think it's absolutely spot on with the, how he did everything, uh, because there was weeks and weeks of lead up of possible tension between MJF and AEW management. He's been asking for a new contract. He's, he's been saying online, I could go to the other company, blah, blah, blah. They're going to pay me a shit ton of money. Which, after that promo, Vince McMahon is going to open his pocketbook up in 2024 and pay that man the money. But, but I think it hit perfect. For a word. Oh, I, it ahead, was, that, was all, that was all a shoot work. It was all planned. Yeah. It was no doubt about it. It was all planned. It was all a shoot. The whole him missing that uh, meet and greet and all that, I think that was all planned to make him look like an asshole, to make him look bad, just so the crowd of pops, when Warlow finally cashes in, cashes in on beating him and demolishing him, because now you made Warlow a star, after that promo, MJF is the new CM Punk. 
he is going to yeah. have the Stone Cold Steve Austin. He's going to have the CM Punk chance. That made him. I, here's the other thing about, though, that I will say. I feel AEW had a lot of good, solid wrestlers that were there before you started seeing everybody leaving WWE to come there that was disgruntled, okay? AEW had guys like MJF, who they made a star. They had guys like Jungle Boy, Luchasaurus, the Young Bucks. They had Orange Cassidy and Darby Allin, homegrown stars. Now, you got all these people here. They have a loaded roster now that's too bloated and not enough TV time. What is happening with guys like Malachi Black? What's happening with Miro? Miro finally showed up after being not seen on television since November. What is, you know, what is going on with uh, with Pac and some of these other talented guys? And not to mention the the homegrown stars that were with AEW from about the beginning. It just, they're bringing in too many people, and I think they're making, I think they're making the same mistake that WCW makes. And when I say that, WCW at one point in time, before the angle, right around the time of the angle of the NWO, and they had all these ex-WWE guys coming over. They had Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage, and they had Rick Rude and Mr. Perfect, and they had all these all these different people coming over. And but they had homegrown stars there. They had the cruiserweights. They had Rey Mysterio and Chris Jericho and Dean Malenko and Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit and Booker T. And it felt like all the and then they had guys like Sting and Ric Flair, which were basically WCW lifers. And it felt like all that got pushed aside for Hogan and for Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. And then Goldberg comes along, and, the, and WCW ruined the one big draw that they had in Goldberg. And now AEW, I feel like, is going after the same model. And I, if you try – AEW just unfollowed MJF on Twitter like four hours ago. I, yeah, that, and they took him off, yeah, the off the roster. But yeah, this, is all, yeah. this is all a work. This is all, right. I feel like, K-Fage stuff. I don't, I don't think he's actually gone – no, no, I don't think so either. I'm just saying they're going to lengths to sh- to try to prove yeah. that he's gone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, Mike, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think they're falling in the same trap as WCW with signing a lot of these guys. Uh, some of them I like. Adam Cole, absolutely, because you can fit him right in with Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks. Right. They were there before. Right. They, they were together. They're best friends. Sure. Uh, right. Bringing in the Hardys, no, you don't need the Hardys there. Um, right, I agree with that. Christian, totally. you don't need Christian. You don't need Mark Henry. Completely, completely out of his mind. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Mark Henry, what's he do? He does the one. Thank you for the main event. That's all he does. Paul White, you don't need the big show there. You didn't need. I mean, yeah, I mean. No, I mean I like so Keith Lee and WWE. Like the payroll for 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 them, aren't they? That's exactly what it is. Like it, it's like, what are you trying to do? You're you're signing all these guys, but hey, like Mike said, there's no TV time for all these guys. 
you're wasting your money on all of these guys yeah, coming at least, in. At least with WCW, at least with WCW, they had like a platform that they could try to promote, right? Exactly. And they almost so they, they almost kind of did like a, almost a, a split brand too with the Thunder roster and the Nitro roster. Right. 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 So, but but yeah, I mean, I I think they're falling in the same trap as WCW signing all these guys, and they just they need to stop. They they do because there's other promotions out there. There's TNA that these guys can go to. There's other promotions in the independent circuit. CM Punk, fine. He was gone for eight years. He's not. I didn't even consider him an ex WWE guy at that point because he'd been gone for eight. Oh yeah, he had been gone from WWE so long you don't even associate him with that. Right. Signing Adam Cole I mean, and Daniel Bryan, huge coups for them. And, right. And John Moxley. What? What that? And John Moxley too. I I think uh, signing him that really made the company kind of big. Also Chris Jericho, yeah. you got to you got to have that veteran presence. And Chris sure. Jericho, I, and I hate to say, I think he's the best wrestler probably ever right now. How many how many times can you say somebody has reinvented themselves and made them a big star every yeah. single time? Yeah. Every every couple of years, he just changes himself, and he's a bigger star. I agree. Yeah, I mean, I, I would. How I would, many um, how many different games? Yeah, totally. I would definitely put him in like that, that category because he's able to he's able to change his character and in so many different ways and adapt to different organizations and storylines. It's crazy. I think he's that you know people like him. I could see actually him being a successful actor for that matter. Yeah, he's got the charisma, certainly, but he's too busy and and then everything else. So, but yeah, Jericho's definitely top three of all time. He's fantastic. He's entertaining. He always puts on good matches. Um, last thing I want to cover, guys, is we only got two minutes left here. Um, and normally uh, we do a longer show and we have an interview, but with it being a Friday and there's so much stuff going on, we kept it at an hour. But Monday we're going to have a, a big show. Um, last thing I want to cover, uh, we just wrapped our Dynasty draft. We got redraft leagues starting here in the next two months or so with drafts. Who are some guys, because I have my guys that I'm trying to draft uh, that that I that there's two two guys in particular a quarter a receiver and a running back that I've I've been targeting trying to target in each draft. Mine are Michael Pittman and Kenneth Walker. I don't know if you guys have guys that you are looking to draft who you think might be getting undervalued or going to have big years this year. Uh, I think J.K. Dobbins is one. Okay. Um. Receiver, I mean, almost that the kid from Green Bay, Watson. I I okay. think he's, I think he's going to be undervalued as well, because he's going to be the. I have a feeling he's just going to be their number one target. Interesting. Okay, Sam. So sorry again, real quick. What was the question, Mike? Who are guys that you are looking to draft? It doesn't necessarily have to be a quarterback or it have to be a running back or receiver. But who are guys that who are like two guys that you are targeting in every fantasy draft that you have? Like who are guys you are? Uh, Herschel Walker is definitely on that. Uh, what, did I say Herschel Walker? I you meant, did say um, Herschel Walker. You said Herschel Walker. <laughs> What's his first name again? 
Kenneth Walker? Kenneth, Kenneth. Fucking hell. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, Kenneth Walker and um, I put Watson on the list, but like uh, I still feel like there's better receivers out there. I don't know. Okay. Second's just a toss in, in the dirt. Yeah. I, I really, I'm really high on Michael Pittman. I think Matt Ryan being there, you're going to see Pittman put up in like top five, top eight wide receiver numbers this year. I'm telling you right now, he's, his average draft position has been about the third or fourth round. I think, I think Pittman's going to return first, second round value this year from the receiver position. I'm very high. Even though they got Taylor and they're going to run the ball, Matt Ryan, with Carson Wentz as his quarterback, Michael Pittman had 80-plus catches and over 1,000 yards and seven touchdowns. I think it's reasonable to think that with Matt Ryan there, Pittman will probably have about 95 to 100 catches, 11, 1,200 yards, and probably double-digit touchdowns. And I think Indy I mean, also learned you... from – I think Indy also learned from Tennessee's – you know, overuse of, of uh, Henry. Yeah. So they're not going to, they're not going to uh, burn out Taylor, you know, and as, as Mike was saying, Naeem Hines is going to have a huge piece this year. Yeah. I mean, I see Indy kind of going, if Paris Campbell stays healthy, I think they'll use, they'll utilize his speed a lot more. And then they also drafted that new tight end. Matt Ryan just always seems to love tight ends. Yeah, so okay. I think they'll utilize the tight end position a lot more too. All right, guys, that's all the time we got here on Friday. Uh, thanks. Uh, shout out to Carl Darden once again for joining us on the All Business Covered podcast. We will be back on Monday. I believe Tommy's joining us on Monday. Uh, we're going to talk Deshaun Watson's possible suspension. Uh, among other things, um, so I can't wait. Uh, Tommy on the show is like a Bigfoot sighting or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Did you say Bigfoot? Oh, Tommy I haven't seen a Bigfoot sighting lately. Tommy said he wants to come around more. I said just join whenever you want to, and he's like, "Oh, I, I uh, blah blah. I, I need to know the details." I'm like, "Just join whenever you feel like it. You can be the asshole that calls into the show whenever you feel like it." So, all right, guys. Well, it's been great. Uh, have a happy weekend. Uh, we will be back on Friday. So, uh, you mean Monday? I yep, yeah, I meant Monday. So, <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. And we will see you.